Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Howes. I'm the editor of the magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. It's Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian publication. We are giving away a free sample copy of the new issue right now. If you would like to take a look at our brand new issue, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample, type your details in and we will send you the latest issue of the UK's leading Christian magazine completely free of charge. That's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Two great interviews for you coming up today on The Profile. First up, we've got Rachel Matthews in conversation with Max Lucado. And secondly, Claire Musters will be speaking to Joe Saxton. Two very well-known, well-respected Christian authors, both living over in the States, and two excellent conversations for you to enjoy on the profile. So without any further ado, I'll hand over to Rachel Matthews for part one with Max Lucado. I've got a cup of tea as well, so we are we are relaxed in our homes during this time of this strange time of lockdown. Tell me to begin with, Max, how how are you, how are your family, how are you finding this season? Well, initially, I found it to be really stressful. I, I uh, we're, uh, This is all so surreal. And uh, I don't know how many times I use the phrase, I never imagined something like this would happen. Uh, so the first uh, six or seven days, I I found myself really tired, tired. I don't think I was sleeping well at night. Uh, I was wound up. I was thinking we got to do something to get through this. Uh, But then in time, I think I began to try to practice what I preach, and and that's uh, trust and and believe that we serve a good God and, and that he sits on the only throne in the universe. Uh, I felt my spirit settling down. My prayer life has uh, increased, and that's good. Uh, and so I, I think right now, uh, aside from the fact that I still don't like to wear a mask, uh, I'm, that we're all doing really well. Thank you for that, and, I, and I'm really glad to hear that, and I'm interested in this conversation to hear about how your relationship with God, I would say, uh, has deepened at this time and how it's changed. But can I take your mind back to your journey of faith? Have you always had a relationship with God? Have you always walked with Jesus, or was this something that you came to at some point? Well, the the real mile marker for me uh, occurred when I was about 20 years of age, uh, even though I had uh, – been uh, exposed to the church and attended church quite a bit. As far as a personal faith and a belief in in the goodness of God and the return of Christ, um, I, I it was about the age 20 when that began to come together for me. I'd really made a mess of my life by that point. Uh, I I've, I don't believe that I. Any any father would want their daughter to go out with the teenage version of Max. Yeah, I, I was a mess. I was a heavy drinker. Uh, I tended to get into a lot of fights. Uh, I was I was chauvinistic. Uh, I, I wasn't. I was headed toward a, a life of trouble. A friend convinced me to to attend church with him uh, in the college town. By that time, I was in in at the university. And uh, he convinced me to go to church with him on several consecutive Sundays, and I went. And the pastor, God bless him, uh, God used that pastor to convince me that God could forgive someone like me. And uh, it was it was the springtime of of the of it was in the spring semester 
of, of that year that I decided I'm going to, I don't like my plan B. <laughs> plan B was, was pretty bad. And so I, I, I trusted Christ and, and that's what, that, that was the, really the mile marker for me. And you began that relationship with, with Jesus and getting to know him. Do you remember if there was a rhythm to your, to your faith at that time that, um, carried you through the week? Did you know him through good times and bad? How, how was it to begin with? Yeah. Well, that is a profound question. Um, in, in my case, I had to change, uh, peer groups. The, the, the people I ran around with were pretty rowdy. I tried to be the good influence, but they influenced me more than I influenced them. And I realized that at least at the beginning, I needed to just change friends. And, and it was a, uh, a pretty dramatic, uh, series of events. I went, I sat down with my friends and I said, I, I can't do what we're doing. Uh, I've, I've changed my allegiance and I did my best to tell them about my faith. And I said, you're not going to see much of me anymore. And, and I found a new group of friends through that church, that one church that my friend took me to. Well, it turns out that that new group of friends were all, uh, seminarians. They were in the seminary that was affiliated with that college and they were preparing to become missionaries. And so through their influence, uh, I stayed in that college and then entered seminary. And, uh, became a pastor. Uh, so it, it, it had a profound impact on the trajectory of my life. We ended up going to Brazil. Several of us did. We spent five years, uh, starting a church in Rio de Janeiro. And, uh, my wife and I met right before I went to Brazil. She was, uh, married that dream with me and, and we lived there and had two children in Brazil. And then moved back to Texas where I was raised in the U.S. And uh, uh, a church allowed me to become the pastor. And I've been at the same church now since 1988. Um, my title is semi-retired. Uh, I, we have a, a younger fellow who's now the senior pastor. But they still let me preach about 20 times a year. And if we go back to that, that, that story that you just mentioned there about that heart for mission and going to Brazil, my understanding is that that was quite a difficult time for you with your dad who had become poorly before you made that, made that trip. And there's a real, you learn a lot about Joseph, I understand, in the Bible at that time. Well, you've really done your homework. Yeah. Yeah. That was an important time in my life. My father was diagnosed with uh, ALS. Uh, it's ulterior lateral sclerosis. It's a very cruel disease. I, uh, before moving to Brazil, offered to my dad uh, not to go to Brazil. Uh, my dad wrote me the most beautiful letter, however. And uh, be, I think in my entire life, he may have written three letters to me. He was not. He was a mechanic. He never sat down with the paper and pen. But this one letter was so precious, I'll keep it forever. And in that letter, he said many things, the chief of which was, uh, I have no fear of death or eternity. Please go to Brazil. Serve God. Serve God. And it was a beautiful statement, a release, a blessing and a release. Because I really would have changed my plans gladly. I, I would have. Uh, and, and it was, uh, in that season that I began to become a real student of the life of Joseph in the Old Testament because Joseph models how to get through tough winters, tough seasons of life. Uh, his, his entire life, it seems, was a, uh, a challenge, you know, sold by his brothers into slavery. Uh, he ended up in prison for something he did not do and then was entrusted with leading the nation of Egypt and consequently the whole world through a global famine. But he did so successfully. And there is no indication he ever became bitter. Uh, anger never metastasized into hatred. There is every indication, however, that he believed in the goodness and sovereignty of God. And uh, I think that's where he found his strength. He told his brothers, what you intended as evil, uh, God used for good. 
God took that which was intended to bring him down and used it to build up the kingdom of God. I believe in a day like we're in today, that's that's really an essential teaching. The belief that God is good, that God is sovereign, that he'll get us through this. We have to hold on to that. We have to. Uh, there's so much anxiety in the world right now. Suicide attempts are on the rise. Uh, applications for divorces are increasing. Now, there's much stress and trepidation in the world right now. Uh, God is calling forth a community of people who will trust him, lean into him, and believe that he's going to use this for something good. What surprised me, and I only read this very recently, what surprised me about Joseph is I, when you read it, it's, it's relatively short in the Bible, and I thought it was a very short season, but it wasn't, was it? It was many, many years, most of Joseph's life, where he had difficulty and, and, and trial and, and loss and betrayal, and he, he just, as you said, just looked, looked to God. And I'm wondering, how do you encourage us when we're not seeing the break to keep our focus on Jesus, to keep being hopeful? Well, uh, that is such a great question. First, it's a great observation. Uh, when you read the story of Joseph, you get the impression it happened all before breakfast one morning because it doesn't take long to read it. But uh, he had to make that long walk to Egypt, some 450 miles. He was sold into slavery, and it appears he was a slave for 10 years. He was in prison uh, for at least two, well over two. We don't know how long. Uh, and then he was uh, overseeing uh, Egypt during the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of paucity or, or lack. Uh, it was about 20 years that he was separated from his family. So this was a long, extended time. Uh, and Joseph <clears throat> had an understanding during this time that God was still on the throne. We get this indication because when he finally was reunited with his brothers, he said, what you intended is evil, God used for good. He believed that God was in the middle of the story. And I know that's easy to say in an interview or a sermon. It's hard to do in life. Many of your listeners today are passing through times of great fear. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they've lost their health. I know many people who've lost friends. And so it is, it's, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, uh, come across as, as condescending. Uh, it's, it's a challenge, but it is a, it is possible for us to do this. We can keep our faith instead of giving in to our fears. I would encourage people to think about the promises of God. He has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He never will. He's here with us. I would also urge people, don't, don't follow your feelings. Don't follow your feelings. Sometimes we got to take our feelings outside and just give them a good talking to. They're not trustworthy. And we need to just believe that faith is a fact. We're putting our faith in God. And number three, let's remember that what matters most is God's hold on us more than our hold on him. Sometimes we will let go, but he will not let go of us. He won't. He won't. And so don't beat yourself up uh, when you pass through times of doubt or disbelief. God has a hold of you. And so don't don't heed your feelings. Think about the promises of God. Believe in the, in the fact that he holds you. These are just some ideas that will help us uh, get through this tough time. Is there a way that you structure your day now, particularly during this difficult time of giving space to be with God, to hear from God, to strengthen you, that you could share with us and maybe encourage us? Well, yes, I do. I, uh, I try to start my day in prayer. Uh, after a cup of coffee, I always have to have at least one cup of coffee to, to get my brain awake. Uh, I have a, a, a journal. I'm actually reaching for it right now as we speak because I'm, I've been in prayer or, or hoping to have some more prayer time, but this is a, a, a just a real help. I take a journal 
and I write down my thoughts. <clears throat> I've used the same Bible now, <clears throat> excuse me, for decades. Uh, I've had to have it rebound several times. And in my Bible, uh, after I read a scripture, I always write where I was, what was going through uh, on that page. Uh, and that helps me in the days ahead to remember, oh, that scripture was helpful to me when I read it 10 years ago or five years ago, although nobody could read my handwriting. It's it's so illegible these days. And then I just pray. I have a prayer room. It's the storage closet. Certainly nothing fancy. By Christmas decorations uh, and, and, and some uh, canned goods. Uh, I have a yoga mat. That's my only decoration uh, because the floor is concrete and not very comfortable to kneel on or lie down on. I like to kneel when I pray, and I like to lie down when I pray, and uh, and I pray. I love to pray, and and I I I pray for quite a long time. At least it seems like it to me. Uh, I find a lot of strength in that time of prayer. Uh, I I feel the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I. Uh, uh, I just I just find that's the best way for me to begin my day. In 2013, you wrote the book, You'll Get Through This, which I believe has been relaunched now with a study guide for us to really kind of immerse ourselves in. But I wondered, why had you written that book at that point? Well, uh, you're right. The book uh, is is really appropriate for now. But in 2013, uh, it was a, uh, in many ways, a response to the increasing level of anxiety uh, that I was sensing in the world. Uh, <clears throat> turns out that that my sense was was on target. Uh, more Americans, at least Americans, and I, I would imagine folks in the UK as well, are battling anxiety than ever before. Uh, we we. Uh, find this especially true in the lives of young people. Uh, millennials find anxiety and loneliness to be the two most severe challenges of their lives. How unfortunate that the very season of life in which we should be adventuresome and enjoying community are for many young people times of fear and isolation. And this is only further magnified with the current pandemic that we're facing. I believe this anxiety comes from two or three sources. I, I believe we are bombarded by news. We're exposed to more news outlets than anything, any time in history. And so we're constantly bombarded with people's interpretation of uh, current events. And, and bad news sells. And so we have a lot of bad news uh, being distributed in the world. I think number two, the world is changing fast, so fast we cannot keep up with it. Uh, technological changes are, are moving at such a rapid pace. And now, uh, in addition with this pandemic, what are we going to do? We, we're facing things we've never faced before. And then I would add number three, just a sense of secularism. Uh, secularism says there is no God. And, and uh, to believe there is no God and at the same time to live in a fast-changing world that's facing a pandemic, that's a recipe that leads to anxiety. And so uh, I, I believe that story of Joseph that I first wrote in 2013 is really still a, a, a will forever, <laughs> will forever be battling anxiety. Joseph models how to believe in the sovereignty of God. That's the big idea of Joseph. Belief that God is not only in control, but He's a good God. And, and that is the best way to manage anxiety. We have many ways that we manage anxiety and all, and many of them are healthy. Yoga, uh, appropriate use of medication, uh, counseling. These are very helpful, but nothing takes the place of a deeply rooted belief in the goodness and sovereignty of God. I know I think in the book that you write about um, having a contractual agreement with God that you can use in the tough times. Can you share a little bit about what that is? Yeah, you've done your homework for sure. Yeah, I think I'll have it printed out and signed, but it's still a real contract. It says, okay, God, I will believe in you if 
And then we fill in the blanks. I'll believe in you if you let me have the perfect spouse, if you give me great health, if you give me a great job. Uh, and then when the spouse doesn't come or, or the, or we don't have the spouse we want or, or, or we don't get the job we desire, we, we tend to have a, a, a faith that is very fragile. God does not ever promise to give us these types of specifics. We can believe that God will bless us, but we must believe that he will bless us in the right way at the right time. Uh, he has already given us more than we deserve. The promise of heaven, the guarantee of his presence, his word to assure us. We already have more than we could have ever imagined. So let's be careful and avoid these contractual relationships with God. And just trust that he'll give us what we need when we need it. If we think about um, today, as we've spoken about quite a lot, and if somebody that we know is going through a really, really tough time, perhaps they've lost their job, they've lost someone, they're very fearful about the future, and they can't see a way through, how would you respond to them? I would really urge them, defy despair. Don't give in to despair. Uh, please, please ask, ask your heavenly father to talk you back off the ledge. Uh, ask him to give you strength to just make it one more day. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't need to strength for the entirety of your life. God gives us wisdom and strength for the day, just for the day and believe that he will give it to you it's okay to walk in the dark uh it's okay to not have all the answers it it, it it's really a, an opportunity for our faith to develop let your let your faith be anchored in the very historical fact that Christ Jesus rose from the dead go back to the resurrection that's the guarantee that's the moment upon which all of Christianity hangs. We believe in Jesus Christ because of the empty tomb. Nobody ever found the body. And don't you know they would have if they could have. But we believe in a risen Christ. And so because of that, we can believe in a living Christ. Uh, go back and examine the tomb. Let your, let your hope and, and let your life be built around the Easter promise. But please don't give in to despair. We don't make good decisions from the pit of despair. Uh, do you just ask God to give you enough strength for one more day? Go back to the promise of Easter and he'll get you through this. So as we, as we look forward now, perhaps to a time when lockdown around the world slowly, um, is released in very different but very slow ways. Can you see, um, a different future? For the church and for God's people, a revival we're hearing. What, what's your sense of what's happening? Boy, I pray for revival. I certainly do. Uh, we're seeing an openness to the gospel that uh, is, is very, very encouraging. Uh, for example, uh, I was a part of a, an Easter service on a, on a station called TBN. Uh, it was actually a Good Friday service. And uh, we posted it on my web page and had four and four and a half million views within 48 hours. That's that's stunning. That's stunning. I, I'm not that, you know, it's not like we're on a major uh, television channel. I post daily in messages of encouragement. We're well over 13 million views on those. And so I think there's an openness uh, to to what God is doing. Revival is a sovereign work of God that only he can, only he can orchestrate. But we've been promised that Jesus would bring days of refreshing. He said, if anybody is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And out of that person's heart shall flow rivers of living water. That's a, that's a message about the Holy Spirit. Uh, when, when we come to Christ and drink, the Holy Spirit flows out of us. And I'm thinking we're going to see that Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit flow out of the church. This is certainly my prayer. Certainly my prayer. Uh, we have a, a beautiful window here. And I think the time for Christians is just to be faithful 
Uh, we don't need to have a swagger. We need to remain humble, prayerful, and just trust that our living God is going to use this to call millions of people to himself. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists, and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Claire Musters. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. So today on The Profile, I'm talking to Joe Saxton. Joe is an international speaker, a Bible teacher and a best-selling author who has a passion for discipleship and mission. I spoke to her about the issues that are covered in her new book, The Dream of You, which looks at embracing our God-given identity. You have a podcast with Pastor Steph, Lead Stories, and I believe you actively mentor groups of women. I've seen you do that online sometimes. Um, I'm just wondering what you um, feel the place of mentoring has in um, discipleship and whether you think the church does it well or not um, and why you do your own initiatives. Yeah, I mean, I think I think mentoring is an absolute game changer at the best of times. But I think particularly if you feel called to leadership and particularly if you're a woman, because you don't often see people who are doing what you're doing. And I think when you there's a, a woman here called Marion Wright Edelman, who um, leads I think she leads something called the Children's Defense Fund. And she said she said this line in relation to kids, but applies to women, too. You can't be what you can't see. And I think often if we don't see other examples, living examples of people doing what we feel called to, we're not going to try um, because all the questions, the, the issue of skill is almost down at the bottom of the list compared to how do I make it work? Is it okay? Have I got permission? Will anybody believe me? Is it too arrogant to want it? And all those other questions. I mean, I, I've been mentored by men and women and I've always found them be quite transformative in terms of me embracing what I was called to do, having the courage to do something about it and being accountable about it as well. So in terms of the groups I mentor and stuff, I didn't feel really particularly strongly about mentoring women until I was here in the States. And I think probably because in the UK there wasn't, at least at the time when I was still living there, there wasn't a kind of women's ministry stuff. I know like colour and that are there now, but there wasn't a women's ministry thing as such. And um, in the environment I was in, I saw men and women leading, but I, it felt so much more pronounced here in the US. And I had a lot of people just ask me, I think maybe I'd got to an age and stage where people were just saying, you know, how did you get to do that? And what did you do? And how did it work? And, and it forced me to think about it and to almost not take for granted the things that I've been given. And I'd always done it one on one. But what I find in groups is that you kind of rise together, you mentor people together and you build a network and almost like a sisterhood of relationships. So I've done lots of initiatives on the side and on not on the choir as such, but just getting on with it and getting on with it ways of trying to gather women leaders together and affirm them and help equip them where possible, invest in them where possible, help build their confidence so they can be unleashed. Because I get tired of now this is probably rude. Is this rude? Anyway, I get tired of people asking, where are the women? You know, where are the women who are speaking? Where are the women who... And, and I get asked it in both the US and the UK, and there's no reason for either. Just look harder. You know, it's, it's actually not that hard. It really isn't. Not You, you find them. Yeah. And if you don't, ask someone and they'll tell you. You know, it's not it's not that hard. But, but equally, I've often found that the difficulty is because sometimes women leaders find it harder to articulate what they want and what and the opportunity, particularly in the area of wanting opportunities, because um, ambition isn't always seen as feminine. So um, it's been great to gather leaders together for those reasons to help process things like that. Um, and some of your previous books have been for leaders and for women, but your new book, The Dream of You, is very much a personal story. You you do divulge a lot of detail about your own life. Why did you think now was the time to do that? 
It's funny, you know, because I didn't actually realise quite how much I'd said about myself until later. I, I, I was a bit slow on that. <laughs> I was a bit slow. And I thought, oh, dear, it's there. And I, I mean, I think, again, because it was the nature of the topic, because it, it's a lot to do with framing how we frame our identity and how our identity gets to where we are. I asked the question, who were you before anybody told you who you were supposed to be? And um, it always gives people pause, men and women of every ethnicity that I've had this conversation with. It always gives us pause because we know there are so many internal and external factors that have shaped us. And it felt weird to write about that without talking about my own life. In that. I think when you're going in tender places, and I, it's something I've learned and continue to learn as a leader, when you're wanting people to go to tender places, you've got to be willing to model that in some way and be transparent in some way and vulnerable in some way. And so it felt important to do the same. And I, and I think also because otherwise it's really, or at least I found it very easy in the past to make platitudes of things of identity and say, well, my identity is in Christ. And it's like, that's great. And it's true. It absolutely is. It's just that if you don't say how you got there, no one, no one, I, I remember people saying things like, that's great information, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means in, in practice. And maybe not being from an entirely church background has helped me ask more questions on things like that. You talk about your childhood a lot. You talk about the fact that you are um, the child of Nigerian immigrants in the UK. But you also talk about the fact that you were placed in foster care and you're placed into a white family. Um, what sort of effect do you think that had on your identity at an early age? Well, you know, my foster mother was very normal. And she, <laughs> and she was very good. I mean, I'm so grateful to the Lord for her. And she was very good in terms of she, she never asked me to assimilate. She always celebrated our culture. And so she, I didn't have to fit in. She learned how to do my hair. She learned what my skin needed. She learned all those things and never made it weird, um, which was great. I think it was probably weird to some of the neighborhood. <laughs> no, um, that was weird. And so I think the impact it had on the identity wasn't so much being with a white family, but how people reacted to me, being, me and my brother right. being, in a, being with a white family. Because it was the 70s and racism was, was more explicit. It's not that it's gone away. Um, in fact, it seems to be making a wonderful comeback. But um, at that point, it was real explicit. So I think the impact on my identity was it was very clear. We belonged in terms of as family and as community. We didn't belong in terms of everybody knew something was different about us. And so that was always pointed out, sometimes out of curiosity, sometimes aggressively, sometimes negatively. And those things definitely impacted my identity. What about the, the moment where you travelled back to London for what you thought was a Christmas visit and then you say and then you realise you were there for good? How did that make you feel um, about your identity? You know, to be honest, I mean, I mean, and it's typical, isn't it? At the time, it was just like, I think the best way to describe it is happy, sad, because your family's your family, but your family's your family, and they were all my family. Yeah. And that wasn't a disconnect for me because I've never had a nuclear family. Nigerians don't do nuclear. We do extended. So yeah. it's always been very natural to have an extended family. And it wasn't like this dramatic kind of, oh, my gosh, I've been taken from these people. It was like, I'm with my family. But what about the rest of my family? Because, you know, because you're five. And it, it definitely it, it probably wasn't until I was way older that I actually thought of the ramifications of how how easy it was for me to detach from relationships. <laughs> now that that definitely, but at the time it was just it was weird and didn't make sense and and great and difficult and painful and uh, confusing all at the same time. Well, it's interesting what you say about um, your foster mother really embracing um, all the different things from your heritage because that obviously helped you. You do talk about that talk that you're aunt oh, gave yeah. you um which I wanted to bring up where with the fact that because you were black and a woman that you'd have so much more to contend with and what kind of effect did that have on you now the irony is I think that's probably had the biggest impact the biggest impact it was in 80 it was 81 so it was just around the time there were riots in Brixton which is about three miles from where I where I lived and you'd see things on the news which were your neighborhood which weren't the neighbor but it wasn't described in the way that you knew and people describing places and people groups in ways that, that weren't familiar to the people you knew and what we did when we were in Brixton on a Saturday in the market and stuff. And I remember at the time when my aunt, and my aunt said it that time, but I mean, we had that talk repeatedly through my childhood, repeatedly. It was, it was like a, just a very, very common conversation. And I don't know many people of color who haven't had the talk, to be honest. I think I've met one in my life. And it was very much a sense of this is what this is what it takes to survive in this world. This is what it takes to um, overcome the stereotypes. This is what it what it takes to overcome the systemic and habitual 
um, stereotypes on account of gender and accounts of your race. And I think what it did was make me think, well, if I want to succeed, I mean, the talk was, Joe, to make it, you're going to have to be at least twice as good. And so it made me, it, it was the, the tools to fight with in many ways that to be twice as good was the only way through, or at least to try to be twice as good. And it wasn't that I was competing to be better than anybody else in, in many levels. I was competing to not get left behind. And so there was a fundamental difference hmm. for me in that I wasn't trying to put anybody else down because I was already down. <laughs> I was already bottom of the rung. And and the thing is, it, was, it wasn't just that the talk shaped my identity. It was that it was reinforced on a regular basis in the world in which I lived. You know, it was reinforced in the ways that we were spoken to. It was reinforced in the way that we were followed around stores. It was it was reinforced in certain things that you'd see in the popular culture um, about black people or about women, about expectations of women and things that um, the expectation of Africans, you know, the amount of jokes that went around about African Nigerian princes who were doing scams and all these other sorts of things. And the, the reinforcement of all of those things made you think, well, okay, then what does it take to get taken seriously for simply who you are, um, for not, to not be tolerated, but celebrated for who you are, to, and, and all of those things. And so I think it certainly made me driven. I think I was probably already driven. It just gave me a lot to be driven about. And because it's, it's something that's in the culture around you. So on one level, you can heal up all you want. The world, and the world hasn't changed. The world yeah. hasn't changed. And so you have to keep on coming back to the Lord about how you process that. You um you said you had difficulties accepting God as your father, and that caused you to mm. kind of just work twice as hard for acceptance, etc. So you obviously have got all these different factors. So mm-hmm. um, how did you come to the place of really truly understanding Him as your father? Then, yeah, I mean, I think the drivenness was just the modus operandi at that point. It's, I guess the attitude was, if you want anything, that's what it takes. And I mean, on in terms of coming to the understanding, I would say God came to me. I. <laughs> I didn't get there. I wasn't, I was very clueless. And um, it was years, I mean, I, it was 1990, it was in at St. Mark's Church in Kennington. And um, someone had given a prophetic word, basically, about somebody um, not knowing who their father was. And it just undid me. Yeah, I mean, I was there to hit on a guy, to be blunt. But <laughs> but, but it, un, it undid me because, not that it was a prophetic word, completely used to that. That had been my church experience anyway. It was that God was talking to me and that he saw fit in amongst a few hundred people to highlight my life. And it and it wasn't it wasn't that even I felt special. I felt known and um, I felt known and seen. And I think I felt a lot of life uh, either through my own personal circumstances or the circumstances of the culture not being seen for who I was and therefore not being valued. Yeah. And it was this moment where the king of kings said, I see you. He said, I see you. I see your story. I see your pain. I see your history. I see your grief. And I see how you've gotten on with it. And it matters to me. It matters to me that you've been through this. And it, it just undid so much junk. And, and, but even after that, there's been an ongoing process of getting to know God as my father for years. It took years because those things that they didn't arrive immediately. So they don't go immediately. You know, it's like change from glory to glory and all that stuff. It was God's been so gracious to me. But I think on that one, I didn't do it. He, 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 he's just been very persistent in helping me understand. Very persistent. Um, and you've already talked about this like a little bit earlier um, about the fact that it's only in Christ that we find out who we truly are but actually you are very honest in your book and you say quite a lot of us haven't found ourselves in Jesus and why do you think that is? I think because sometimes although we sing and pray and read about Jesus reaching to us I think sometimes our default position is what we do to reach to him and so we we forget that we can draw near to God with full assurance of faith and find mercy and grace it's like okay God here I am for you I'm going to present my faith to you. I'm going to perform my faith for you. And I think that's what happens. And I think some of us um, forget that that being in Christ is, is part of this covenant exchange where he takes on our junk. Maybe we're embarrassed or ashamed of our junk. So it's like, I'll clean it up. You don't have to, you don't worry about it, Jesus. I'll clean up and then I'll come to you mm-hmm. <laughs> and come to you. And when I'm better and when I'm a bit healthier and, uh, and I prayed more recently, then we can talk. Kind of. and, and it's amazing how easy it is to slip back into those, into those old groups. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think sometimes it's actually, we don't want to be open about our junk because it's really, mm. it can be really costly. You talk about that too. Um, you're totally, yeah. you're very honest about the process and say, yes, 
we experience relief and freedom. But actually, sometimes when God's doing a deep work, it really hurts. It's really painful. And sometimes we actually Mm. just want to hide away and comfort ourselves rather than facing that. So how did you um, learn to push through in those moments where you had that choice of do I do this or do I just hide and comfort myself again? Yeah, I mean, I think pain's a, pain's a great teacher one way or another. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's the healing pain of being vulnerable or the damage. And I, I think I learned, I, I think there are a couple of things. I think I learned maybe the first time God met me, that probably that time when, I, when he revealed himself as father, I just thought I'm going to take a chance on God on some of this stuff. You know, I'm going to take a chance on him. I'm going to take a chance on he, I mean, it sounds, it, it does sound like arrogant posturing saying that because it's God and everything, but <laughs> there's no point lying to you. Um, I, and I was like, God, I'm going to see if you can do something with this. And as I've seen him move, it's helped me trust him with the other things. And it's helped me recognize, you know, that his power, you know, those words where it says about his power being made perfect in our weakness came alive in a particular way. I know it speaks to a deliberate context, but in the sense of that weakness and vulnerability and God meeting me there, I've seen him do that. I've seen him take those horrible things and turn them around. So when I'm resistant, I look and think I could stay where I am or I could choose. Yes, the the picking up my cross and denying myself and admitting my junk, but following Jesus somewhere and seeing what he can do. And um, I think for those of us who are standing on the precipice of this stuff, I would just say, you know, you've got to take a risk on him. It is vulnerable, but I don't want to buy into the lies that tears are weak because that's foolishness. I don't want to buy into the lie that vulnerability is a sign of you being um, weirdly damaged. Of course I'm damaged. I've lived life like we all have. I don't want to buy into the lies that me just covering up all my junk is the way to cope when actually he gives us pathways to life. And sometimes those pathways take me, take me to have taken me to an altar. And sometimes those pathways have taken me to an altar, which also had a, doct- a doctor's office involved. And, I, and I, I just don't need to be ashamed of that. I just want to be free. Who cares what people think when you, when you're free, you care less. I've, I've noticed. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we can have a conversation about whether I'm a mess for seeing the counselor, or we can just celebrate the fact that I'm free. And I, I, don't know, I like freedom. Freedom tastes way better than the other stuff. So you talk about walking away from experiences that named you or labelled you, mm-hmm. but walking yeah. away with a limp like Jacob. So you were it made you aware of your weaknesses and your vulnerability. And I mean, you've just talked about vulnerability there um, that created dependence on God for you. But so many of us, and this is something that I found um, over the years, we're afraid to be vulnerable with one another. Yeah. But that means not only do we miss out on journeying together more deeply, but we miss out on that intimacy with God so why do you think we we choose um protection of ourselves over vulnerability I mean who wants to go first do you know what I mean who wants to go first and say hey I'm still working through an eating disorder hey uh, do you know what I mean who wants to go first and say hey I cut myself today or hey I'm I've lost my job and I'm and it's my fault and all our reasons are very very human and very very understandable because and and you know sometimes sometimes you know we have been vulnerable and it's been taken for granted or it's been taken advantage of or abused in some way and so we protect ourselves because we got hurt and it's hard that the same instruments of hurt in, as in human beings can also be the instruments of our healing other human beings or even the same one and and so it's I think it just is really risky territory to dare to go there. But I also feel like, you know, our our God in his very nature is relational. Um, Jesus, who modeled a perfect life, was relational and vulnerable with the people around him when he he weeps before them and he asks them to stay with him a while in Gethsemane and stuff. So he models for us a way to live. But it is costly. It really it really is. And again, I, I don't know how we do any of these things without the risk that it could go awry. So just to go back to your own journey, um, and obviously we've kind of left that where you were still growing up in um, the UK at this point, but obviously you got married and there was a a moment where you and your husband decided to move to America. Um, And so you share about that wilderness moment. So you've moved from England to Arizona and it it was a real wilderness. It was not what you were expecting at all. At all. Um, So... The wilderness is often the purpose behind that is testing our sense of identity and purpose and exposing the state of our hearts. You also mentioned the valley that you um, found yourself lamenting deeply within. So what did you learn about yourself in both the wilderness and the valley times? Gosh, you know, the wilderness was, oh man, it was hard. And it was long. I mean, it was long. It was probably about a decade. I learned a lot about the Lord. I learned that he was there and he was faithful and he was kind. 
I think in many ways I felt sometimes I was on the outside looking at myself on like on the outside looking in. I think with the with the wilderness it 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 stripped things away, but it actually made it quite simple again. You know what I mean? It made it quite simple to when I was a kid in this small church that no one heard of or cared about, and I had the Lord and he was moving by the power of his spirit and I had a Bible and that was, and I had some friends and we were working out imperfectly and God was doing stuff. And I was reminded of that. I I was surprised how much I drew on that period of my life. I thought I would draw on the big church, big experience as I'd had when I was in Sheffield and all those kind of stuff. And I didn't, I drew on the times when I was small and vulnerable and lonely in those times. Um, And I realized that, no, whether I think I did learn that whether times were good or bad, I know how to dig for a well. Do you know what I mean? I know how to dig for water in tough times. I realized afresh the importance of praying. I, I think it did hit home, actually, how key it is to deal with the stuff in your life again. And that that's um, one of my friends describes it as it's like pulling off the layers of an onion. And it's like there was a whole other layer. And some things creep up imperceptibly. You don't realize they're what you want. Like, you know, when I moved to the States... I mean, I felt called to the States. I felt called to the States since I was 14 years old. I, it, it was a long-term thing, but there was my calling which had to fall off and what God was actually asking of me. You know what I mean? I didn't know the expectations that I'd placed on things until they weren't there, <laughs> until they weren't met in any way whatsoever. And um, I think the wilderness has a way of doing that for you. Things that you just thought they would that would be the way you thought they would be. And then you'll realize God never actually said that and he never promised that and you know the word promises all kinds of stuff without it being bad (laughs) um I think that in terms of the grief time oh my gosh I mean it was devastating it was just just devastating and it's you know I probably even wasn't even able to really reflect on it for about five years after because it um in losing my foster mother and my father in such a short space of time like five weeks apart it was just like boom numb and I think looking back I realized how much the Lord carried me you know what I mean? He just held me. And there's a bit in the Bible, like, oh, forgive me, I can't remember where it was. I think it's in one of the one of Peter's letters, and it talks about being kept by the power of God. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned those things about being kept by the power of God. And, and, and also that those things, you know, the wilderness and the valley aren't all terrible either. You know, I had my kids in that time. It was a wonderful time. That Arizona is this arid, dry place that if you don't drink water fast, you do, you, it does mess you up. But it's also this beautiful place, a big, bright blue skies and amazing sunsets valleys are desperate places but they're really intimate with god as well and so whilst they kind of seared my soul in a way and i'm not the kind of person who said i wouldn't change them for the world i totally would change i totally would change them i would if i could avoid them um particularly the valley i'd have the people back in a shot i'd change it but equally i just i mean i think i i was reminded that god is still here he's still here He's never left. He's never going to leave and he's never going to forsake me. And it was never it was never about a job or a role or all those sorts of things. It wasn't even about a country. It was about how faithful and good he was. And he still is. So now you're obviously a very regular speaker, an author, a leadership coach. How did you get to the point of embracing um, this part of your life where your calling is now? Did somebody speak that into you and call it out of you? Or was it something that you very much felt? for years was inside you that God had very definitely told you about and so you stepped into it how did that actually come about oh um probably bits of both you know I think some of it (laughs) I do feel clear I do feel I'm often the last to know these things you know um like on the leadership stuff I look back and I realize that even since I was at school people were putting me in positions of leadership I'm like oh yeah right okay yeah that's right and I, I always considered it something that I did or but I didn't think about it in a calling sense but there were times when some, sometimes just people's encouragements were really were, were really key I remember when I was in when in my 20s when I was at St Thomas's and the team were just so encouraging and they gave me opportunities and they created opportunities for me um and then kind of let me in them <laughs> and, and stuff I think that was really affirming and sometimes when I'd step out and try something and just see what God did and I'm like oh we need to talk about what you just did there Lord do you want me are we, is this a thing that we're going to do is this is this kind of you and me is this how we roll I'll do that um and then 
You know, I, actually, now I think about it, there was at the end of that valley in that uh, that year when I when my when two of my parents passed, there was a moment near the end of that year, and I can't remember who. Um, it might have been a conversation me and my husband had. There was a common, but there was something about that year at the end of it that I came out thinking, okay, I need to go for this now, and I don't know what it was. I, there, I think there was something about a generation having passed. And me recognizing, I mean, it felt very young to lose people. I was, I was 34 when when um, they died. But there was something in that era as well that was a, I, I, I can't even describe what it was, but it, 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 there was a moment in that year, even in the valley, of standing up again meant I was going to take hold of all that God had um, taken hold of for me. And, I, and I, to be honest, I think I ask him regularly, <laughs> I'm like, what, what are we doing? What are, what are we doing, Lord? And um, trying to respond to the world around me because you know, there have been some chapters of my life where I'm doing stuff, but the emphasis is very different. And this just seems to be the emphasis right now. I'll tell you what it, what uh, the other key thing was. I grew up a Methodist. Uh, well, I say Methodist. It was Methodist with a splash of vineyard, I think, would be the accurate. <laughs> um, but we used to do the Methodist covenant prayer at the start of every year. And there's this thing about... Um, I'm no longer my own, but yours. Rank me with whom you will. Put me, I'm getting this wrong. Put me to what you want. And it says, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Um, I'm raised up for you, brought low for you. Forgive me, Methodists, because I've completely butchered all of that. But you know what I'm saying. And, um, but there was this sense of this year is yours. Do what you want with me in it. And I feel I, I come back to that. Right now, it seems to be um, that raising up leaders, investing in leaders, particularly um, those who are underrepresented, which often leads me towards women and always leads me towards people of color, seems to be the, the, the primary thing that gets me going. Not the exclusive thing, but the thing in this chapter of my life feels right to do. But hey, there'll be another chapter and he'll ask for something else. It, it's never quite what I think, but yeah, it always feels like I wondered what took me so long to work it out. So the, the subtitle of your book is um, Let Go of Broken Identities and Live the Life that You Were Made For. So um, and just kind of wrapping this up, what would you want to say to readers or listeners about how they can embrace the life that they were made for? Um, I think the first thing I'd say is it's not too late for a new beginning. This is not for you in your 20s. This is, I was just hearing the story of a woman in her 70s um, just last week who said that it's given her a, a fresh lease on how she perceives a life, which is really humbling and wonderful to, to hear. I would say um, we're not too far from the grace of God. We're not too far. It's not too late. It's not, you're not too far gone. You're not too lost. It's not too hard for him. Obviously it feels way too hard for us, but it's not too hard for him. And it's worth doing. We have been given this precious gift of life. He came that we might have life and have it to the full. Let's have the life he has for us rather than the one that life has told us we have to have. And it is painful and it is challenging and it may mean you see a therapist. You know, do you know what I mean? it might. It might mean part of your journey means you need to go to a doctor and say, I have been in a weird place for years. Could you help me out here? It may mean all of those things, but underneath of the everlasting arms and um, he'll lead you to, to freedom, um, lead you into purpose. And I think we need that right now. Our key relationships need that right now. Our world needs that right now. Uh, I'd say choose redemption. Choose redemption.